Keep uh, Revelation 15 open. Uh, we're studying this evening, really, verses 2 to 4. I'll briefly deal with verse 1, but really it's verses 2 to 4 this evening. As we consider the theme, standing and singing on the sea of glass. Standing and singing at the sea of glass. Well, when you're engaging in any sort of demanding activity, uh, maybe lots of hard work before an important deadline, uh, maybe intense physical exercise, it's very important to give yourself little pit stops, uh, little times of refreshment so that the intensity of what you're doing uh, doesn't completely wear you out. Uh, some of you will know that one of my ministry colleagues <coughs> several years ago ran six marathons in six days in the six counties of Northern Ireland. Uh, not something I would imagine that most of us here tonight have any desire to ever do. But in between those marathons, uh, I believe he made sure to get his rest uh, getting whatever food and drink he needed, if memory serves, perhaps even uh, the perk of the whole thing was he got some discounts and some very nice hotel rooms, and he was able to get some refreshment and prepare for the, the next intense leg uh, of, of his project. Well, Revelation is one of the most intense books of the Bible, uh, not just because it has all these pictures and symbols that w- might be hard for us to understand. But because of what those pictures and numbers represent, a lot of it is telling us about judgment. We considered a passage about judgment this morning. A lot of these passages are emphasizing to us uh, struggle, spiritual warfare, uh, which is is our reality, our daily experience here and now if we're Christians. And of course, we need to hear these things. We need to be equipped for our spiritual warfare. We need to know about the realities of the universe in which we are living, the spiritual realities. But God in his grace, friends, knows that it is demanding for us, uh, weak and imperfect as we are, it's demanding for us to read and study these things. And so what we've seen throughout Revelation is that it's actually got these little pit stops built into it. It's got these little breaks These little passages that enable us to to take a breath, to take a step back, and to take some encouragement. And it's with such a passage that I want to end our time in Revelation this evening uh, for the the near future. Chapter 15, verses 2 to 4, is another little pit stop in the midst of the intensity of this book. Uh, Verse 1 of this chapter is already beginning to move us on to the next major section of Revelation and This is what makes this book a little bit tricky for preachers to break up uh, because it's almost like the the different parts of this book are like interlocked. You know, if you have your arms like this interlocked with people either either side of you, that's a bit like the the different sections of Revelation. Just as one is ending, uh, the next section is already beginning. And as we leave the the cycle of the seven signs, uh, we're already getting into the cycle of, of the seven plagues or the seven bowls. If you look at chapter 15, verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Now nothing more is said about these plagues and bowls until verse 7. And again, that's the next major cycle of visions, seven plagues and seven bowls. But tonight I want us to focus on verses 2 to 4. Chapter 15, verses 2 to 4. And I want us to think about this encouraging 
soul-stirring, heart-motivating picture it gives us of what lies ahead for all who belong to the Lamb. Notice verse 2. I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass. A sea of glass. The sea of glass has been mentioned already in Revelation. Back in chapter 4, when John first saw the vision of heaven's throne room, he said that before the throne was a sea of glass. And here in chapter 15, the sea of glass reappears and John sees all Christ's people joyfully praising God beside the sea of glass. Their struggles are over. Their enemies have been judged. They no longer have any sin. They're at rest. They're enjoying life with the Lamb. And they're praising the Lamb. So I want us to think tonight about what we see as we look at this sea of glass. First of all, let's think about what the sea of glass symbolizes. What the sea of glass symbolizes. What does this picture mean? Well, almost, almost every picture and symbol that we see in Revelation is heavily informed by the Old Testament. You've maybe heard me say a few times before, if we knew our Old Testament better, we would understand Revelation a lot more quickly and a lot more easily. And Exodus 15 is very much in the, in the background and informs what we read in Revelation 15. Uh, Exodus 15, which we read earlier, is the victory song of Moses and the Israelites as they stood beside a literal sea, the, the Red Sea. And in fact, John says here, if you look at chapter 15, verse 3, he says, the saints that he sees in heaven here, standing beside the sea of glass, they sing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. So to understand Revelation 15, 2-4, we need to think about Exodus 15, 1-6. We need to think about the great deliverance of God's people at the Red Sea. And so you remember what happened. The Israelites are happily, joyfully making their way out of Egypt towards the promised land. And then all of a sudden they come up on the shores of the Red Sea. And in the particular place where we believe they would have approached the Red Sea, there would have been mountains either side of them. And then to make matters worse, they hear the sound of chariot wheels coming up behind them. Egyptian chariot wheels. Pharaoh and his army, incited no doubt by the dragon, the devil, coming after God's people to drive them to their death in the swirling waves of the Red Sea. But God, through Moses, performs what would be remembered and celebrated as the greatest act of deliverance in the history of Israel. He splits the Red, the Red Sea in two. Psalm 78, 13 puts it this way. He divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime he led with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. Fiery light. I don't know if, you, if we really think about how long it would have taken the Israelites to walk through the Red Sea. They were a company of hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, and not just men and women, but little children and animals and elderly folk as well, no doubt. And so day turned to night as they walked through the Red Sea and God's fiery light was with them all that time, the psalmist says. 
Just notice, by the way, what John says here in Revelation 15, verse 2. He says he sees a sea of glass mingled with fire. He sees that holy, fiery presence of God, the same God who was present in the pillar of fire at the Red Sea. It's interesting as well, uh, traditional Jewish teachings about the Red Sea, some of them describe the waters being heaped up like a sea of glass. Same description that John uses of his vision here. Uh, The Jewish traditional teaching emphasizing the stillness, the, the calm that came upon the Red Sea when God intervened. And having walked past Uh, The people, of course, are are able to walk past the water mounted up like walls either side of them. Closest thing we could ever come to this is walking perhaps through an aquarium. The difference being, of course, inches and inches thick of glass between us and the water that we pass by. And the water, in this case, miraculously standing as it did because of God's intervention. And having experienced this incredible deliverance, The response of God's people led by Moses in Exodus 15 verse 1 was joyful, wholehearted praise. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. So friends, bearing all of that in mind, what does the sea of glass in John's vision symbolize? Well, for one thing, it symbolizes the the sovereign power of God. The sovereignty, the the sovereign power of God. We've seen already in Revelation that the sea usually symbolizes danger and threat, but not this sea. Because this sea is perfectly still. It's a sea of glass, clear as crystal. It's telling us again, friends, that What may be a swirl of chaos in our experience here on earth is a sea of glass from God's perspective. God in his sovereignty looks down in this world and there is nothing threatening, nothing chaotic from heaven's throne room. Maybe some of you have had the opportunity to take a trip on a glass-bottom boat Um, I've never done it, but I would imagine it gives you quite a different perspective on the ocean or the sea that you sail across if you're on a glass-bottom boat. If we're looking out horizontally, if we're just looking out from the land at the sea, it's just a swirl of chaos, the waves pounding, uh, the tide sloshing, whatever direction it's going. But if you're looking down from in that specially designed boat, you see everything clearly. It's not chaos. You, You can see perhaps creatures... Uh, swimming around you can see the plant life you can see everything under the surface of the waves that's like the view from the throne room of heaven Joel Beakey preaching in this passage said heaven's floor is the earth's ceiling heaven's floor is the earth's ceiling when we're there when we're home everything's clear everything will fit everything will make sense Because we'll be seeing things from the perspective of our sovereign God. Then as well, this sea of glass, of course, symbolizes the safety of the saints. Sovereignty of God and the safety of the saints. Moses and Israelites stood on the Red Sea shoreline having walked through 
in perfect safety, the sea of glass either side of them, no threat to them whatsoever. And as Beaky says, when they got to the other side with the spray of the sea still in their faces, they lifted up their voices in praise to God because they were safe, because he had brought them through, because they were wholeheartedly thankful for their rescue. And Revelation is giving us a refreshing little stop here, friends, a little pause in these verses. Amid all the intensity of the book, even the intensity of the judgment that we thought about this morning, we pause here to think again about the safety and the contentment and the joy that we will have in, in perfect measure. We have a measure of it now. We will have it in perfect measure in eternity because of what God has done for us. This is the experience of all our brothers and sisters in Christ who have gone ahead of us to glory. They worship God in perfect safety, perfect security, with wholehearted thanksgiving. We might feel like we're fighting against waves right now. Fighting just to keep our head above the waters of temptation or pain or frustration. Friends, there will be none of that in heaven. You'll be standing, as it were, beside a sea of glass. You'll be safe and secure. And like those Israelites, you will gladly lift up your voice in praise to God and say, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways. wonder, Christian, what is causing you most stress in your life right now? What has you most anxious? What has you most baffled? What, what has left you thinking, I don't know what to do next? What about those prayers that we've prayed for things that we think surely God would, would want to give me this? I'm not asking for a Ferrari or a mansion, asking for something perhaps that God's word has told us to ask for. And yet God hasn't given it. Salvation for a loved one. Some long-cherished desire to serve him in a particular way, a, a relationship with someone. And we can't understand why God wouldn't answer those prayers we'd, as we'd hoped. And loved ones, it may be a swirl of uncertainty to us from our perspective. It's a sea of glass from heaven's perspective. God sees it all. He, he understands it all. He cares about it all and one day we will look down from heaven and we will understand far better and we will see it all so much more clearly and we will have rest and safety from our sorrows. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 12 for now we see in a mirror dimly but then when we see Christ face to face. Now I know in part Paul says then I shall know fully. That's what's waiting for us, friends, at the sea of glass. Perfect understanding. Rest from our sorrows. Gladness and joy. So what the sea of glass symbolizes. Secondly then, how we get to the sea of glass. How we get to the sea of glass. Notice who it is that John sees at the sea of glass. Verse 2. Those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass. The word conquered there is one that we have seen over and over and over in the book of Revelation. 
It's actually the Greek word from which the word Nike comes from, uh, to be victorious, to conquer. Uh, And in particular, this word conquer, it takes us back to the seven letters that Jesus wrote to the seven churches in chapters two to three. Uh, To each of those seven churches, even the ones that Jesus wasn't particularly pleased with, he made them a promise. He said to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers, he tells the church in Ephesus, for example, uh, Revelations 2, Revelation 2, verse 7. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Revelation 3, verse 5. To the church in Sardis, Jesus says, The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. And in fact, most of the promises that Jesus makes about conquering, uh, they, they're to do with the eternal destiny of his people. That his people will be pillars in the house of God, chapter 3, verse 12. That they will sit on his throne with him, chapter 3, verse 21. And so Jesus, all through the book of Revelation, is urging his people, endure and conquer. Endure and conquer. And remember again, friends, these are believers preparing for, or in some cases already facing, persecution. They're losing their jobs. They're surrounded by pagan worshippers. State-sponsored celebration of various false religions is being encouraged. They're being slandered and gossiped about. They're the oddballs. They're the moral dinosaurs in their culture. And the whole book of Revelation is written to tell them and to tell Christians in every generation thereafter, hold on. Keep looking to the Lamb. Keep standing firm. And that's how we get to the sea of glass. You think of what Paul says in Ephesians 6 verse 13. Therefore, excuse me, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. You might think when we read that, we're to put on all this armor and all we have to do is stand Do we not have to do something more? Do we not need to move forward and take the hill and advance the cause? Well, friends, sometimes simply standing your ground is all the victory you need. If you already belong to Christ, if you're already saved by his grace, if you're already looking to him, the author and finisher of your faith, then all you need to do is keep that up. Keep doing that. Stand where you are. Think, for example, of the weightlifters at the Olympics. They they take those bars on their shoulders with hundreds of kilograms of weight on them and they they lift the weight above their heads. Well, they don't need to walk forward with the weight. They just stand. They hold it and that's the accomplishment. And if they do it, they conquer. And if you're following the Lamb, if you confess Christ as Lord and Saviour, Christ and King... Just stay where you are. Just keep standing. And that's how you conquer. And that's how you arrive someday at the sea of glass. Question might be in your mind if you have a good memory from what we read earlier in Revelation 13. Revelation 13 verse 7 says that the beast was allowed to make war on the saints. And to conquer them. 
Well, friends, what it's saying is that Satan's beast often seems to have the victory. When Christians are marginalized, ignored, mistreated, hated, particularly when Christians are martyred for their faith, to all appearances, it seems as though the beast has conquered them. But of course, even if our lives on earth come to an end, our souls go straight to heaven, to the, to the sea of glass, to be with the Lord, and to await the resurrection of our bodies when Christ returns. And so whatever might appear to be the case, it's the saints who keep their faith, who remain faithful to Christ, who actually conquer the beast. He doesn't conquer them. The point is, friends, we only get to the sea of glass if we persevere in our Christian faith. Remember that other word that keeps popping up in Revelation, endurance. Chapter 13, verse 10, in light of all that we read about the power of the beast, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Chapter 14, verse 12, here is a call for the endurance of the saints. The word means stickability, digging in, holding your position, preparing for the long haul and the big push. Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent on Calvary's cross. He has offered himself up in our place for our sin. He has risen again to conquer Satan and sin and death. We conquer only if our faith is in him, our eyes are fixed upon him, if we endure and persevere and stand our ground for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the doctrines we hold dear in the Reformed faith is that of assurance, the perseverance of the saints that that Jesus Christ will lose none of his people. That no one who truly is a child of God can ever lose their salvation. Our names have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life since before the foundation of the world. Jesus the Good Shepherd will lose none of his sheep. But friends, that does not take away from the fact that the Bible commands us to persevere. To, to not make shipwreck of our souls, to To not give in and to not give up. And that's exactly what Satan is tempting many in the visible church to do in these days. Last week it was announced that the 2021 UK census found that for the first time less than half the population of England and Wales identify as Christian. Now we already know that the number of people in this nation who truly know and love the Lord Jesus Christ has been way below 50% for a long, long time. (coughs) But nonetheless, friends, it's news that reminds us of the direction our society is headed in. The number of people in England and Wales who now say they have no religion at all is 37% and rising. And we already see the impact of these things and we're going to see it more and more unless either the Lord returns or unless the Lord sends revival. And these are yet more reasons that Satan might throw at us for discouragement, perhaps even for giving up. Friends, if you want the peace and joy and victory that will be, will be there, the sea of glass, then you must endure so that you can conquer. Persevere in opening up God's word each day and filling your mind and heart with his truth before you step into a world of lies. Persevere 
in meeting together for worship, that we might glorify God and that we might encourage one another and stir one another up to love and good works. Persevere in prayer. Persevere in witness. Persevere in your convictions. Endure and conquer and you will be there someday at the Sea of Glass. What the Sea of Glass symbolizes, how we get to the Sea of Glass. And thirdly and finally, what we will do at the Sea of Glass. What we will do at the Sea of Glass. And quite simply, we will sing praise to God at the Sea of Glass. We will worship him like we have never worshipped him before. Notice verse 3 says that they sing the song of Moses. And we thought about that earlier. But it goes on to say that they also sing the song of the Lamb. And this is John's way of saying that as great as the deliverance was that led to the song of Moses, the deliverance that we'll sing about at the Sea of Glass is even greater. That as wonderful as the thanksgiving was at the Red Sea for God's deliverance then was the thanksgiving and the praise that we will offer to God at the Sea of Glass will be even greater. Look at the words the saints sing in verse 3. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. They're singing about what God has done through the Lamb, the deliverance of the Lamb that is even greater than the deliverance in the days of Moses. That title, Lord God, the Almighty, it emphasizes again God's sovereignty, the Almighty. There is no one whose knowledge and power and authority exceeds that of our God. It says as well that the saints sing to God, just are your ways, O King of the nations. Just are your ways. Again, friends, this is what the sea of glass is all about, that we will see the perfect ways of God and we will understand the perfect ways of God better than we ever did here on earth. Standing at the sea of glass again, it's like that glass bottom boat that changes our perspective. It makes everything so much clearer. The sea of glass means that one day we will no longer be saying, as Paul did in Romans 11, how inscrutable are God's ways or, or strange or unknown or mysterious. That's how we feel now here on earth. We don't always understand. We don't always see clearly what God is doing. But in heaven, the sea of glass, we'll be able to praise him because we will see the justice and the perfection of all his ways. Verse 4, the praise continues. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? It's a rhetorical question, of course. Takes us back to what we saw last Lord's Day evening, chapter four, chapter 14, verses 6 to 13, that there will come a time when all the nations, all people, will bow the knee, will fear the Lord God. There will be no one who doesn't at the return of Jesus Christ. It goes on, verse 4, for you alone are holy, the uniqueness of God here. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Again, friends, notice this theme of God's plan, God's will, God's purposes that are now so clear to those who stand at the sea of glass and sing praise to him. G. 
Jesus once said to his disciples, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. And the same is true for us today sometimes. There's, we understand more than the disciples did at that particular moment when Jesus spoke those words. But there are still things we, we don't understand. Why should little babies be threatened in their mother's wombs, the place that should be safest for them? Even little toddlers. More and more we hear these awful stories of the mistreatment of toddlers by wicked parents. Why should a thuggish leader like Vladimir Putin just suddenly get to decide someday to start a war with his neighbouring nation and hail down rockets and missiles on civilians? Why do good things that we enjoy have to be taken from us or come to an end? Why do people remain so hard-hearted and closed off despite the, the misery that their worldly living is bringing them? We don't know the answers. We don't always understand. But we believe that God is holy and righteous and good. And one day his righteous acts will be fully displayed and fully known. And we will praise him with renewed, with full understanding. And with full appreciation for all of his goodness and grace. We will sing praise to him forever. With the perfection and wholeheartedness that we see described for us here. This worship of heaven emphasizes the fact that there is no God like our God. David Platt says there is a high view of God in heaven. No one is held in higher esteem than him. There should likewise be a high view of him here on earth, friends. The Lord's Prayer, we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If heaven is a place where God is wholeheartedly worshipped, where his kingdom is celebrated, And we should endeavour to make the earth the place where he is likewise worshipped and his kingdom celebrated. And on that note, friends, are we worshippers of God day and daily? Or are we worshippers of the beast? Again, remember the beast takes different forms. He would distract us with worldly concerns. He would tempt us to believe that family or work or sport or food should be the thing, the central thing, the God thing in our lives. And all around us in Dromore and in Northern Ireland and in these islands, people are worshipping and serving created things rather than the creator God. Is that what you're doing this evening? Hoping for some great deliverance, hoping to get perspective and purpose from things that are like sand falling through your fingers. Or is the focus of your life this great deliverance that God has brought to you by the Lamb, Jesus Christ? Be encouraged, dear Christian. One day you will no longer be tossed and battered by the waves of this world, disturbed by the beast. One day you will be standing and the beast will be sinking down into that pit where he will be tormented forever by the wrath of God. You'll be standing looking looking out in that world as though it were a sea of glass mingled with fire. The holy sovereignty and judgment of God bringing order and perspective to everything. And you'll be singing these sweet songs of worship and thanksgiving to the Lord God Almighty, the King of the nations. So keep standing, keep enduring, 
And one day the Lamb will welcome you home at the sea of glass. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Amen.